I kind of really lived in this double life, double world type situation where the abuse was happening and no one was aware of it other than myself and my father. Um, so I have an, an older, I, I've got an older brother, a younger sister and my mother all in the same household. Um, and whilst that was happening, our life was really normal. Welcome to Moral of the Story, a podcast where everyday people talk about their real life experiences. We live? Yep. I'm feeling pretty good right now. Yeah, because everything I've ever wanted is within my reach. But I've got to be impeccable whenever I speak. Well, welcome to Moral of the Story, Caroline. We really uh, appreciate you jumping on our platform. And um, it's not an easy topic to uh, discuss, um, but it is something that we, it's a topic that we do believe is important to uh, talk about. Um, that being, uh, I don't know, it is uh, sexual uh, abuse. I don't know other way yeah. to say it. Yeah, um, yeah, childhood sexual abuse. It's it's not it, like even as it leaves your mouth, it makes you squirm a little it, bit. It, it doesn't really feel comfortable for me to even say say it, but mm. I, it's something that needs to be discussed. It's something that we don't. It's not in our everyday conversations. Well, we're allowed mm. about depth, yeah. We're very, <laughs> and yeah, even just preparing for this episode, we wanted to do our own research and yeah, we, yeah so we would even uh, just listen uh, to other victims and, and what they've uh, been uh, through as well. And yeah. um, you say, um, I'm pretty sure this is written in in your book. I'm not too sure if I'm, I'm getting this from, from other source, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. But um, you say... Um, um, from every uh, uh, victim that walks among us, there's yeah. an abuser that walks yeah. among us. And yeah. that really is, uh, that's a sad reality that, that yeah. we're so unconscious, we're so that um, of their, their existence. But that's why it's uh, something that needs to be spoken about just to really raise awareness on this on this topic. Yeah. And I guess it's, um, so I guess firstly, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, and also thank you for taking the time to really contemplate how you want to approach this topic, because it is something that makes people really uncomfortable. But in addition to that, people can refuse to speak about it because they're worried about saying the wrong thing. And if you just go into this conversation with an open mind and with the lens of wanting to support survivors um, and, 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 you know, educate yourself and, and educate your community, that's already the first step. So um, I really appreciate the effort that you've already put into that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, and yes, I do say that in my book um, that, the reality is when you meet a survivor, it means that somewhere in the world there is a perpetrator that exists. Um, but I can I can say that the likelihood of those numbers being one-to-one -one are very slim. So the reality is, is perpetrators often have more than one victim slash survivor, however that person identifies. Um, and so... I guess there's a bit of comfort in knowing that we aren't walking around one survivor to one perpetrator because those numbers would be pretty horrific. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, the reality is that they are walking among us. And, and in a similar way to how we don't 
often know that survivors are survivors, um, and that was very much the case for a lot of people in my life up until recently, we don't often know that perpetrators are perpetrators. So we're all partly invisible at times. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure we're already aware of the, the answer, but we would like to hear from you, like why tell your story? Mm. Uh, so there's a few kind of different reasons, to be honest. Um, there's the kind of overarching when survivors speak about their stories and when we share, we remove the shame and the cloud and the darkness that is really overwhelming um, because we're sitting in the space of silence and and it can be the first, some of the first steps to you know, healing and moving on and, and moving with, um, cause we don't really move on. We kind of, you can't shed that. So you take it with you and you, and you work out how to navigate the world with this existence. Um, but in addition to that, that kind of more overarching looking at how, um, survivors should reduce the silence around this topic so we can educate and do better in this space. Um, there's a few personal reasons. So I, um, and I share this in the book and I, and I guess for any of your listeners who may want to read the book, this is where I say it's like, I'm, we're going to be talking about it. So if you want to read it, you might want to read it first and then come back to this. Cause we're going to share a lot <laughs> that is in there. And some people want to hear it firsthand in a book and some people are quite happy to consume it in a podcast, but it's yeah. kind of a bit of a spoiler alert type situation. Um, but in my case, I had, um, I had kept this secret for the majority of my life. So the abuse happened when I was 10 or started when I was 10 and I'm nearly 40. So, um, and I only disclosed publicly and to my, some of my very close family um, about two years ago. So I've carried that as a secret and carried what that looked like for me in my world for decades. Um, but I had gotten to a point where I wanted to live. I wanted just to be free of this secret and I wanted to live my truest, most authentic self. And I couldn't do that Mm. whilst keeping this secret. And I needed to make some real significant life changes. So the first step was having very difficult conversations with family. Um, and then the next step was going on to then share that with extended family and then friends um, and then being prepared to, in this case, I chose to write, write a book. Um, I mentioned before, I've done podcasts before. We were chatting before we started recording and I've done you know, interviews. I've done lots of things in the public eye, um, but I wanted to be able to control the narrative of this story and, that that's why I thought a book would be the best avenue for that. Mm. And I think writing your thoughts down is like, is therapy in a way mm. as well. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you, so it was only a couple of years ago that you really kind of came out um, about it publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, if we want to talk publicly, it's really just been since the book. So I released the, my memoir at the end of May. Um, so 30th of May was the official kind of release date. Uh, and there have been childhood friends that have read it and didn't know anything that was in there. So people that I knew alongside that were kind of in my life and, um, have been in my life for 
all of these years that knew nothing about this abuse because I had kept it a secret for that long. Um, so in a lot of ways, that public disclosure has only been, you know, we're recording now in early July, um, so it's only been a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came to close family, um, I chose to disclose to a few close family members at the start of 2020. So, yeah, it's only been a few years. And as I said, um, I'm nearing my 40s and the abuse started when I was 10. So it's a long time to be carrying yeah, a secret. Yeah. I wrote this yeah. down. Um, it was, um, it takes an average of 24 years for survivors mm. to speak up about their abuse. Mm. Like that's. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in that statistic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Can you just give us an insight? Because I think that would be helpful for a lot of people. To yeah. understand why do you think we or victims kind of carry that secret inside for so long? Yeah, for so long. Um, so just based on my lived experience, um, I um, so the abuse um, is from my father. So uh, and in my case, my parents are still together, so they're still married. Um, now I kind of really lived in this double life, double world type situation where the abuse was happening and no one was aware of it other than myself and my father. Um, so I have an, an older, I, I've got an older brother, a younger sister, and my mother all in the same household. Um, and whilst that was happening, our life was really normal. So as normal as normal can be, because I don't think anyone's life is normal. All of our lives are quite complex. But um, to anyone looking in from the outside. We were a normal family. We had the dynamic of three kids. We, you know, did extracurricular activities. We, um, I was a fairly normal student at school and I did things at school and um, I had friends. And and so for me, I was living this life that was normal and trying really hard to maintain that as well. So I fought really hard not to come completely crumple inside of myself. Um, and I probably did have some really clear shifts of um, behavior and, and it would be interesting if anyone had ever noticed that teachers or anything like that. I'm not sure. Um, but so my world was kind of happening and everything was positive and lovely and normal and then this was happening at the same time Um, and in my case um, my father was never violent Um, he never threatened me Um, and the moment I actually found the words to speak up and asked him to stop he stopped so that in itself is quite rare um, Mm. or can be quite rare so there's all of these kind of unusual things happening all all at the same time on top of the enormity of the fact that there's this abuse happening Now, what happened for me is a few years later, after the abuse had stopped, I disclosed to my mother and she chose not to leave, not not to leave my father, I should clarify. And so that meant that we remained in our family setting. So once again, this normal life continued and eventually you just get used to normal life. Um, And most families have some secret 
maybe not as enormous as this one, that they just sweep under the carpet. Like, oh, we don't talk about that or we don't want our friends to know or we don't want the rest of the family to know if you're in a big um, extended family because it can taint the family and we don't want people to gossip and we don't want people to worry or like we don't talk about our business outside and and all of that sort of stuff. So I feel that there was a, a lot of that happening at the same time. And when you're a child... Um, so in my case, I was 16 when I disclosed to my mum. You don't really know anything else. So when the adults in your life and when the trusted people in your life make decisions, you're like, well, that's the decision. And you don't know to kind of think, well, maybe there's another option or whatever else. And and I kind of share this in the book and I talk about the choices that I made, but I'm really conscious as a as a mother myself that those choices, there could be a question mark around the word choice because mm. did I really have a choice? I was mm. I was a teenager and I was dependent on my parents. Um, so in my case, life went on. We remained in this happy family setting and life continued. So I never, like, I never needed anything else um, in the sense that, yes, I probably very clearly needed a lot of emotional safety and um and psychological support and a range of other things that I definitely needed, but everything else, like if you, if you kind of had a, a, a list of things you would tick off for what your average teenage p- person needs, everything was there. Hmm. So it was in a lot of ways easier to just keep doing life. And that can just keep happening. Yeah. The years go on and the Christmases happen and the birthdays happen and life happens and things keep happening. And if the the people that are leading are saying, well, this is how we do life and we don't talk about that thing that happened when you were younger, mm. then of course. But that thing that happens to you, and I, I, even that wording is really clear because it like I didn't choose that. It happened to me. Mm. It erodes from the inside. And so as I got older and I would sabotage my relationships or I would have a really violent temper or I would flinch when my husband would just touch me on the shoulder or I would have nightmares or whatever, that stuff is like still bubbling on the inside. And so eventually, sometimes 24 years later in that statistic you just read, we just break. Mm. We just and that break can be we break and we have a breakdown. That break can be we break and we choose to numb and we seek out substances or behaviours that can numb that feeling inside or eventually we just go, I can't hold this in anymore because it's eating me out like from the inside. I need yeah. to speak about this. Um, and disclosing doesn't always necessarily mean that they, you know, the, the survivor goes to speak to you know, law enforcement or they do X or they even confront their perpetrator, a disclosure can just be that they speak to their best friend or sometimes it's speaking to a complete random stranger because there's no, there's no risk there. That person probably isn't going to do anything and you just kind of need to get it out. So, um, yeah, I, I think for me, I was trying to maintain, I just really desperately wanted to live a normal life. And the more, that I could do that, the more that I could try to ignore the fact that this thing had happened to me when I was 10. Mm, mm. I think we all do. I think that's it, just inbuilt in all of us that we all mm. kind of just expect to uh, 
uh, live a normal life until something comes and it's like our little minds can't comprehend it and we're just like uh yeah so it's kind of like we kind of it's almost as if you shut it uh or put it to the side now it's just i'm just gonna and yeah. you said you bec- you became a good act- actor like you or actress oh, you'd say you yeah, like, you know that's it's just you were living this double life you felt like you were in that's yeah. that's that's really hard one thing one thing i want to and i out. think sorry you go you go I was just going to say, I think everyone can relate to that. So when people hear that statistic and go, oh, my goodness, why would you take so long to tell someone? You can relate that behavior to lots of different things. So as as a woman of color, I have experienced racism here in Australia. Um, I, I'm an immigrant. I moved here when I was five. Um, I didn't speak English when I moved here. Um, and I took a really long time to really find my sense of self and that's a whole nother podcast and a whole nother conversation. But um, when um, George George Floyd was murdered in the US and the Black Lives Matter protests were happening and all that sort of stuff, a lot of my white friends, I spoke up about my experience. I, I think I shared a couple of social media posts or whatever else. And a lot of my white friends were like, wait, what are you talking about? This stuff hasn't happened to you. And I went, oh, oh, wait, I just don't tell you about this. Mm-hmm. So, yes, of course. Like I, I could, I said I can tell you 10 examples like just from the last couple of years of mm-hmm. things like microaggressions to really specific stuff and they were horrified and they're like, why have you never told us? I'm like, because I'm just trying to live my life. Yeah. I want a normal life. I don't want to be, oh, I'm, my goodness, I'm the victim and I experience all this racism and blah, 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 blah. Of course not. I've got a life to live and I want to, you know, I want to be focusing on the positive and I want to be building my career and I want to be doing and spending time with my family and doing all those positive things. So that's exactly the same thing as in we don't disclose the racism that we experience all the time um, because we don't want to make people uncomfortable and we don't want to highlight the negative and we want to get on with our lives. And if someone of colour he is that they go oh yeah i do that all the time mm. i'm like well that's exactly what we do as survivors of abuse and you can then lend itself to something that maybe happened in your childhood that isn't as traumatic as childhood sexual abuse but it's like oh we just don't talk about that because i just wanted to get on with my life um so i think the theory can be kind of applied to lots of different things um and when you think about it from that perspective it totally makes sense why people take so long to disclose because there's shame, there's the want to just get on with life um, and it's complex and it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like people are going to uh, read a situation and they're going to ask questions like, oh, you know, like why didn't you do this or why? But it's the thing is there's no right way to mm-hmm. handle those situations. Like people will look at it and be like, oh, you should have did this or you could have did this or why didn't you speak up? Or it's like there's no – in uh, going back to uh, you as a 10-year-old, you know, like I'm sure people would have maybe have asked that question, oh, well, why uh, – I remember because I, I was even speaking about your book to a few people and they would ask questions, oh, did she do this? But I'm like – well, hang on, there's no, you're talking about a 10 year old, <laughs> like what, what yeah. you know, there's no, there is no right way. That's the yeah. thing. And that people, uh, there's sometimes we can't, we don't get it because as an adult, 
we're able to rationalize on things and, you know, look at a situation and be like, oh, this is how uh, we can go about this or whatever. But, you know, when it's different when you're in the situation, when you're actually experiencing it. And it's also different when you're a 10 year old as well. Like there's no, and that's something that uh, people uh, feel like we don't understand. We don't get it. We can't, unless you're actually experiencing it, you can't really talk about it or you can't really, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. It's like that situation where people can give the best advice, but can't take their, their best advice. You know what I mean? It's like, Because you're in a situation doesn't mean you'll act logically in that, in that moment. Mm. And it's very easy for someone to reflect back on a situation and go, well, why didn't you do this, this and this? It was like, well, I was in the heat of the, like that person might have been in the heat of the moment and, and not known how to act. And for us, I think having these conversations really kind of opened that dialogue and saying, okay, so there's this, there's this two-sided part to it. I feel like a lot of people... Um, kind of project what they think should happen. And then there's the other side was you're actually, when you're actually going through it, not knowing how to react, not knowing how to deal with this sort of situation. So um, one thing I was going to ask was, uh, you know, I think you mentioned it before, but uh, the feeling of holding a secret in for so long. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how like little things in a day like you know, a husband touching you and you'd flinch. And I thought that was really interesting because I was sitting here wondering like, what does it feel like to holding a secret in like that for so long? And yeah. I can imagine it's like shackles and you just want to break free. Would you say yeah. that's kind of. Yeah. It's, there's, there's lots of different ways that that shows up. So there's definitely the feeling of carrying trauma Um And so one of the things I explore in the book is um, how trauma actually impacts our DNA. Mm. So we've got our DNA structure and then there's the, this thing called epigenics, which means that when we go through a traumatic event, um, our, our structure of our DNA doesn't change, but it puts like almost like little stickers, they're called tags um, and they get carried through and they can actually be passed on to future generations through our DNA, which means that the trauma that I've experienced in some way, shape or form, I have probably passed on to my children, but it's up to me to, I can re- like through therapy and through all of the things that are, um, that are out there that can help people process their trauma. You can actually remove the tags as such, which is fascinating from a cellular level that, ancestral trauma so whatever may have happened to my um parents grandparents ancestors from there but also that if you haven't processed your trauma you can pass it on unknowingly to the next generation so when i talk about this toxic thing that lives inside of you i was almost terrified but fascinated by the fact that i was like oh my goodness this actually impacts our dna like it's not just this analogy of like this toxic poison bubbling away it's actually changing our bodies like it's changing us um and so that was really fascinating to me which then helped me understand things like physical and mental triggers um which is what i was sharing before 
So, yeah, sometimes it can feel like you're carrying something like a, you know, in the pit of your stomach. And, and I keep kind of referring to this part of my body because that's kind of how, where I feel it uh, physically sometimes. Um, and most people have had that feeling of like feeling really anxious or your stomach goes all funny because you've got butterflies or it kind of feels like it's kind of gurgly or you get a lump in your throat or you you get a cold sweat or whatever else. And, and what's really difficult when you're carrying trauma that hasn't been processed is you, um, you have these, it can be different things that trigger you, but if your brain hasn't processed the trauma properly and you haven't had the right kind of healing and therapy, and I say therapy in a really loose way because therapy can be, you know, a traditional psychologist, it can be a spiritual healer. It's whatever the person needs. Um, and everyone has different ways of unpacking their trauma and healing. Um, but if you haven't unpacked that and processed that, what happens to us in our bodies is we in some ways are transported back. So it can be really sensory. So it can be the smell of aftershave or it can be something like that, which I know physically where I am and I'm in 2022 and I'm standing in this body at this point in time, but a smell can, my body can react in a way that I may as well be 10 again yeah. sort of thing. So it's, and, and that sensory experience, everyone understands that. So everyone's got, you know, that one smell that transports you back to that ice cream that you ate when you were mm. seven and you were on holidays with your family somewhere warm and you can remember like all of those little sensory things. Like smell the sand is a big one as well. What was that? Sorry. Like smell is a big one. I think. Oh, it's huge. So smell is a really interesting trigger point that um, can trigger positive things, but also trauma um, touch definitely. Um, and, and then just sometimes words. So I, I had a, I had something happen like a few years ago and someone said something to me and I froze, like I, I felt myself fro- freeze in my body, and and then I just watched their face, and I, they could tell, I could tell that they were like, "What's what's wrong?" Because I probably went quite pale, and it was just a sentence that had been said to me when I was a child, and I was like, "Oh wow, I, it, it, it's amazing how like when you don't process your trauma, how it can completely derail your day." Um, and so for me, another part of why I'm doing this now is I, I just can't live like this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I can't unpack that trauma and start diffusing that and start removing some of those triggers and unpacking them and working out what's going on with them until I actually speak this truth. Because it's like you can't treat the symptoms until you get to the root cause. And I know what the root cause is. I just wasn't talking about it. So now I'm talking about it and I can identify it. And now when I look at the symptoms, I'm like, okay, well, what does that stem from? And what do I need to unpack and diffuse here? So that can no longer be a symptom. Mm-hmm. As cheesy as it sounds, the, the truth really does kind of set you free, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so true. Yeah, and I did want to speak more about this because um, especially for those that um, may be listening that may uh, be victims or you know, of this, like it trauma or that um, or that PTSD, it's something that is uh, that needs to be spoken about. I feel like how do you how do you did you uh, deal with your trauma how how do you deal with it what little things brought you comfort 
Yeah, so I didn't deal with it for a very long time, I'm going to admit. Yeah, was there um, anything through, like in your um, in your teenage years, because that would have been the height, the height of it, I, I'm guessing, yeah. was there yeah. anything that you did that kind of was your little escape or was there... Yeah. No. And this is what's really, it's it, like really valid question, but really fascinating because I can't, um, I genuinely can't think of anything I did. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I definitely went through a stage in my teenage years where I did drugs and alcohol and really poor behavior. Um, and it was interesting because at the time, it was probably just brushed off as teenage behaviour. Um, you know, teenagers experiment with stuff all the time and they're at that age where they're rebelling and they're pushing boundaries and, and whatever else. But and, and I write about this stage of my life, but I was trying to completely destroy myself. So I was trying to numb what was happening. And because I was, I was stepping in and out of these worlds. I was getting up, going to school, spending time with friends, trying to have boyfriends, trying to just do life um, whilst this was happening at home. And so I just kept finding different ways of just exploring how I could not feel this way and not kind of feel as horrible as I was feeling. And so that's like... And it wasn't an escape. It probably made things 10 times worse. Um, but that went on for a few years and, and then I kind of lost interest in that. And um, and what's really interesting is I, I actually found that – so I didn't receive a lot of therapy. I, I When I spoke to my mum when I was 16, she did send me to a psychologist and, and so I did see someone for a really short period of time and it wasn't – a like – the experience wasn't amazing. Um, I didn't see him for very long and I kind of just opted out of that because it wasn't really working for me. And I also feel that there was a part of me at the time that was like, that's great. Therapy's great, but we still live in this house. So what's the point? Like, I obviously just need to learn how to get on with this and get over it because no one else seems to be doing anything about it. So I kind of learned really quickly that I just needed to get on with it and only rely on myself and, and that's really detrimental to healthy relationships with all of my loved ones because it meant that I had this theory in my head that I could only rely on myself and that's what I would do. So what I ended up doing is just becoming incredibly responsible, incredibly resilient um, and super busy. So, and that's still a trait of mine. And I know that now that I identified, I'm like, oh, am I doing that because I genuinely want to do this thing or am I doing it because I'm trying to deflect because I don't want to feel those horrible feelings or I don't want to work through that therapy or I don't want to do the thing. Um, and I, there's a line in the book that kind of floors people every time and it talks about the fact that being busy is a really great kind of form of armour because when we're busy, we don't have time to stop and be present and feel. Um, and being busy is a really socially acceptable way of numbing. Mm. Um, like if I sat at my desk, uh, like in an office, 
and just started pouring a glass of wine in the middle of the day, everyone in the office would be like, has that person lost their mind? Like, what are they doing? Or I just started like popping pills or um, whatever. Like you, people, like socially, people would go, you can't do that. And they're like, oh, but, and if I turned around and went, I'm having a really bad day because I'm feeling all the feelings of my trauma, they'd still be like, but that, you can't do that. Yeah. But if I sat at my desk and someone walked past and said, oh, can you take on this project and do you mind working overtime and can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, cool, no problems. I can do more stuff and I can do more stuff. And that's – I'm not feeling my feelings. I'm just numbing in a different socially acceptable way. And um, so, yeah, I guess to answer your question, unfortunately, there probably wasn't a lot that I did at the time that helped and was good for me. Um I was really fortunate that because I was in some ways living a normal life, I had some beautiful friends. I did confide in one or two friends at the time who were really supportive and are still people I'm in touch with today um, and were very much a lifeline for me. So I didn't feel like I was completely in the dark. Um, But, yeah, I've probably only really done good therapy healing work in the last few years and that's consisted of different types of therapy um definitely self-care things around like journaling and um just being in nature and just the things that I know work for me and and what I do when I'm triggered and need to diffuse things so yeah Mm. having healthy relationships is a big one though isn't it Mm. yeah definitely definitely. yeah for sure um I we kind of um kind of brush past it a little bit, but I did want to speak a little bit about who you were beforehand, uh, what you were like as a child. Um, cause before the abuse, did you say? Before, before, yeah, kind of how you were as maybe a family unit, like um, what uh, in comparison to after, obviously the um, – you were 10, so you were really, yeah. really young. And then, you know, after 10, that's when a lot of your growing up happens. Yeah. Um, so I'm just assuming you obviously were very um, innocent. Or you, you were, uh, yeah, I was just a, your average day-to-day kid. Like, I, you know, the, don't get me wrong, trauma really, really messes with your brain from a memory perspective, and, and that is definitely one of the things that is probably – I, I'm a detail person. Like I, I, you know, I pride myself on the, you know, details and organization and I run a whole business around that sort of stuff. But my memory of my own life and my own childhood is is so patchy and it's what the brain does to, um, you know, to kind of protect the rest of the brain. So essentially what happens is when you have a traumatic experience, it kind of captures everything from that point in time, but you can't pick and choose the memories that get, put aside because they're traumatic and then the rest of the memories. Mm-hmm. So there are just like big chunky blocks of time that if it, like I have people that are like, remember when we did this thing and this person was wearing this and we did this. And I'm like, was I there? Like, I, don't, I don't remember. Um, and that, as I said, as someone who remembers a lot of detail, that's not like that. It's, it's quite sad. Now I can start unpacking those memories but I have to unpack all of them, mm. which means I then have, have to process all of the negative stuff at the same time. But when I think about what I've heard about the kind of child that I was, because that's my, my main reference point, to be honest, um, I, I've definitely been described as, you know, just 
like your average kind of day-to-day child who liked dancing and playing and and I have a really big extended family so playing with my cousins and um like dolls and all of that sort of stuff music definitely um and then I don't I don't necessarily think that that changed dramatically when the abuse happened because I fought so hard to still be normal Mm. yeah so no one noticed. Yeah. Like everyone was in the household and no one knew. Mm-hmm. So I know that there are survivors who within a minute just completely crumple mm. and their parents are like or whoever is caring for them is like, what happened to our child? And like you went from this kid that was doing – handstands in the front yard to never leaving your room and you went from this to this or this to this now there was no signal like I'm sure there were things that maybe were really subtle that people just didn't pick up on but overall no one noticed um I that's the acting part that I was like oh this is the script so the script is I am still daughter in this play that we're playing and my role is to do this. So I will do this and I will act and I will go to school and I will have friends and I will do this and then I'll go to high school and I'll do this. And then I kind of rebelled and tried all the things. And then I was like, okay, now I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm going to go back to the list and back to the script and I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to finish school I'm going to have a family and then I'm going to have a career and I'm and it just kept going and going and going. And then one day I was like, that's all great, but why can't I sleep at night Mm. or why can't I do whatever? And so I was like, Oh, that's this thing that's still bubbling on the inside. So, um, but yeah, I think anyone that would describe me as a child is one thing, one person that, um, a cousin of mine did say, she always remembers me as just being like, I was always kind of in there playing with all the cousins and all that sort of stuff, but I would always kind of sit back and just watch and reflect. And, and that's very much my nature. I'm, I'm a, I love human like behavior. I love people watching and I'm always curious to see kind of how the dynamics are playing out and where I fit into those dynamics. And I don't really need to be the center of attention. I'm quite happy sitting in the background as long as everyone's having a good time and, sort of stuff so yeah and I think those traits are still there in me um which is really lovely because I could have completely crumpled and fallen apart and and rightly so if that's what my body and my brain chose to do to deal with the trauma so be it but um in my case that wasn't wasn't the case so yeah as I'm um hearing you speak I feel like you really understand trauma like you've told us about you know how it changes your dna and these little tags Mm -hmm. appear throughout trauma and you really have educated yourself everything about trauma would you say that has been um, a factor to healing is really understanding it yeah i um like even in that trade i just said about being curious about humans and people watching and whatever else, I always want to know why and how. Mm. Um, So there was definitely a point where I was going to write this book just so I could blow up my life and I wasn't going to disclose to people. I was just going to hand them the book and just (laughs) just deal with it that way. And and then the 
my my normal brain kicked in and went, that's not how you do stuff. And then even as I started writing, um, maybe it was a bit of imposter syndrome, but I definitely had a moment where I was like, does anyone even care about my life? Like surely I need to make this more interesting and educate, like not educational. That wasn't really the intention. It ha- there is a bit in there that people find interesting and there's research in there. But it was yeah, I always need to understand why and how. And for me, it was really important to understand how I was going to continue to heal and how I could contribute in a way that could potentially support other survivors to do the same and and to find some little piece of gold in my story that they could then take and bend it and flex it and do what they needed to do to do their own healing. Um, But I was also really conscious that it was important to me to understand that in my case, my mother and my father have made decisions and have had actions that I don't necessarily agree with. And in a lot of ways have been really harmful, but in a lot of ways, they're still really good people in so many other facets of who they are as human beings And I needed to understand the why in that and the how. So trauma, every time I kind of went, why is this like this? The word trauma would appear Mm. because it would be, well, what happened to that person? And and why does that person make decisions? And, And so when I kept kind of seeing this very consistent thread, I was like, okay, I need to understand this word. And and it's very complex. Trauma isn't, you know, it, it isn't, black and white there's all different types of trauma um it appears in different ways um it appears in our bodies in different ways but it was really important to me to do that for my own healing and understanding um and then in hopes that i could gift that to other people be it people that were just curious and wanted to know more like yourselves or fellow survivors or potentially even perpetrators um Mm. because i think that there's definitely an opportunity and some value in perpetrators taking a moment to understand their own behavior, obviously taking a very big moment to change their behavior, but to understand potentially what may have happened to them for them to be behaving in this way. Mm-hmm. Can you educate us a little bit on just the, the, I guess the moments leading up, like the, uh, I guess the term is the grooming process. Mm-hmm. Like what is, because it obviously went from, you know, everything normal life, normal life, and then this happened. Like, was there? Can you recall anything, um, like signs, warning signs? Yeah. So in my case, there wasn't really any grooming as such because, it's your dad, I for guess. lack of better words, I was a captive audience. Um, I wasn't going anywhere. There was no grooming needed in my case. I was in the house every day. Um, so when you see behavior of grooming and my understanding of, of grooming, it is very, very specific, but it's, it's grooming everyone around the child. So not only is the perpetrator grooming the child to trusting them, to testing, to see what boundaries they can cross so most perpetrators from my from the research I've done will just start with something like they'll drop a little comment in or they'll maybe you know touch the child's hand or they'll and then 
if the child reacts, they'll go, okay, that's what happens there. And then they'll do something else. And then they're like, okay, well, that's what happens there. And they'll test and they'll grow and they'll build on that. It's just like building blocks to get to the point where they know that they can take that opportunity. Um, So that's what happens to the child. But whilst a perpetrator is grooming a child, they're also grooming the people around them. So it's saying to that that child's caregivers um, or parents, oh, no problems, like I can, you know, I can look after them or I can drive them to that thing or, yeah, of course they can just hang with me for an hour if you need to, you're running late or whatever. So they're looking to build trust um, and they're looking and to build their, and this is a particular type of perpetrator that I'm painting the picture of because there's there's complete, they're all very yep. different. Um, but in the term of grooming and the research that I've done, this tends to be the research that's out there. Um, but they'll, yeah, they'll build trust with the adults around this particular child. So, and there's two reasons for that. One, it gives them access to the child, but two, it also builds the perpetrator up to seem like if the child says something that the um the parent or whoever they're speaking to is like oh no that person's so lovely like he always drives you and he's so nice and he made us dinner the other day or this happened and so it creates this ideal of well this person's a good person of course they like wouldn't do anything because they've built that trust Mm with all of the adults around this child. So it's incredibly manipulative and incredibly dangerous, but it's it's in in the case of grooming, it's a slow burn. So it's little micro moments of testing and checking and checking with this person and speaking to this adult and creating an opportunity. Um, and then they, they get the child to a certain point where they don't say anything because they're like, well, wait, and then children are also only children in the sense that, like, we'll keep referring to the fact that I was only 10. Like, you just don't know sometimes. You don't know how to speak up or who to speak to or whatever else. And, and then in my case and in the cases of a lot of survivors out there, when the person is your trusted guardian, you kind of go, well, wait, who am I supposed to speak to? Like, what what am I because in most cases, people go, oh, I'd speak to my parents. I'm like, well, who was I supposed to speak to? And and then maybe I knew um, even as a child that my mum wouldn't do anything um, or wouldn't do enough um, because as we see to like after years later when I speak to her, she doesn't really do a lot um, and that was her choice and and we can unpack that in a completely different way. But, um, yeah, so that to me is the understanding of grooming. But in my case, you could probably say that that was happening from day one because I I was just there. I was a child. I was in the household. It was like there was no – none of that needed to be set up because the other adults were just – they were my parents. And then in the case of um, – you know, physical touch and whatever else. Like you're you're hugging your parents and sitting on their laps and spending time with them from the moment you're born. So that all of that kind of grooming behaviour didn't need to occur because it was already the trust was already there. Um, and then the you know the uh, access to me was already there. So I think 
Yeah, it's a really complex one. And I, and I think when I look at the, the information around when perpetrators are parents or ca- close caregivers, it's opportunistic. We're just, we're right there. There's no, there's, there's nothing for them to, they don't have to work really hard to gain access to us. Mm. which is terrifying. Like, and I think even as I'm talking about this, like I can feel my stomach churning because I have children and I think about my children all the time. And when I think about this context and, and I'm sure even the two of you are just like, wait, yeah, you're like, we're just in our parents' home Mm. and we're just supposed that they're supposed to be the ones that protect us. And yeah, they are. Mm. Um, And so that's what makes this story very, very complex because if something was to have happened to me outside of my home, if anyone else had done anything to me or I had been hurt, my parents would have gone out and like done everything that you expect parents to do. Like they would have, they would have, would have protected me. So this is that more than one thing can be true. Like I didn't want for a thing in my childhood. I had absolutely everything I needed if you don't count this part of my story. Mm. So where do you go? Like, where do you, um, if it's at your home, like if something, like you were saying, if something happened outside where you go home kind of thing, and that's kind of your safety, mm-hmm. your, where you feel protected or, you know, there's people that you trust yeah. like that, that must've been such, uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to comprehend it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the question of where do you go or what do you do, that's, it's really hard because it's really loaded on a child and, man, that's a lot of responsibility on a 10-year-old. Like, I don't my, – my youngest son is 10 and mm-hmm. sometimes I look at him, especially his friends, and I'm like, you don't have the capacity to do anything like you're 10 mm. and I, it really like the it it wasn't lost on me that due to certain circumstances I my book was kind of ready in July um sorry in January but for, for lots of different reasons I ended up releasing it in May which happened to be around the time that my son turned 10 and I was like oh that's just the universe reminding me that there's no such thing as coincidence um but I definitely was at that time kind of looking at him as a 10 year old and going okay so what would you do and how would that work and what kind of what have what skills have I taught you and how does this all work and and you just don't know to be honest um it definitely takes the child and how they're brought up and what they do it takes to be honest it's about the adults around us so it's not we can't put that pressure on the child because the moment your body goes into fight or like fight 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 flight or freeze in most cases for children it will go into freeze you have no voice and so you're not doing anything. And even from a physical um, size perspective, like a, a man versus a 10-year-old girl, the, the physical size of that is like you can't move, you're small. So um, I think instead of where do you go, it's what can we do as adults. And in my case, it would have been really hard to pick the cues because there were micro changes but I was working really hard to be super normal um but it's instinct Mm. uh unfortunately we've all probably had an incidence when we've gone to a 
an event or a dinner or maybe even a family event where someone just doesn't feel quite right. And there's something in your body that tells you that something they say or something they do or even just their energy makes you go, I don't, like you just get a bit weird Mm -hmm. or they act, they, they might not be doing whatever towards you. You might see them say something or do something and you go, oh, like that just makes you feel uncomfortable. That is your gut instinct. And we never speak about our gut instincts because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. So for example, you're sitting at a lunch, I was sitting at a family barbecue and you see another adult kind of say something odd to a child or act in a way that you go, that gives you that feeling. But what goes through your head is, did I really see that? Or it's not really my place because you know, I don't know that person or that's such and such as son and that's uncle blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to cause a scene because we're all here having lunch. And how many times in your head do you not do, how many reasons do you find not to say anything or do anything? Because mm. you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But as opposed to going, hey, he doesn't want to give you a hug. Just let him go play. Just stepping in and going, hey, I can see you're pushing this. Just leave him alone. Um. And then you're the terrible person that made a scene. But if that's the part that breaks that grooming behavior, mm. then that's what we should be doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Because it's our job as adults to protect the kids around us. It's not the job of these kids to find these superhuman voices and actions and do something because they're, they're like they're little. But, yeah, when, when I see... You know, kids get all squirmy and they're like, I don't want to hug that person and I don't want to do this thing. And it's like, okay, listen to your body and say, and then as adults empower them to listen to their bodies and go, your body's telling you that you're uncomfortable. Don't tell them that they have to do certain things because that person is an adult, because then you're telling them that whatever they physically feel is not as important as what that adult tells them to do. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's so important to listen to to kids, isn't it? Mm. And even our own instincts, because in a similar way to that racism example I gave earlier, how many times have we seen someone experience a microaggression or something that's happened and we go, oh, I don't really want to say anything because it's going to make me like, you know, I'm going to look, I'm making a scene or whatever. But instead of going, hey, that wasn't really cool. Like we don't use that word or we don't say that. And that's all you need to say. And you, you know what, we've all been there. Person. Like we've all what been that, there. Sorry? Like we've all been in yeah. those those situations. Like we've all we can all relate to um, seeing something uh, or even experiencing it ourselves, and just not like there's the in, in our instinct, and we just like okay, now nah, we just uh, don't. It might make us feel uncomfortable to act on our instinct because mm-hmm. it might make us or others feel uncomfortable. But really, that could be the the protection. Could the thing that that could be the difference. thing that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it could just break behavior. So, and it could just, because if a child's being groomed, um, then they're kind of, as I said, it's a building block effect. So if, if they're like three or four blocks in and you knock that tower down, now that person might, might start building that tower again, but at least you've knocked it down. So the child goes, oh, okay. So all that stuff that I didn't really like, that wasn't okay because mm. someone, another adult has seen that and 
said, hey, that's not okay, and has empowered me to go, oh, yeah, how I feel is real and I'm not imagining it. Because um, as kids, like, they're still just learning. They're still kind yeah. of navigating the world and learning about their bodies and how they feel. And it was something that I've always done with my kids um, is I never kind of get them to – hug or kiss or greet people in a certain way some kids get really shy and they want to hide behind your leg but you know because they don't want to say hello to someone or whatever else and we're like no no no, go say hello and it's like no if he's shy because he's uncomfortable then let him be shy and uncomfortable and say hey he's just a bit shy he's not really good at saying hello when he if he feels comfortable later he might come and say hello to you and that's it because it's like we choose being polite over just letting people do what's safe for them, mm-hmm. um, especially with little kids. So empowering them to to really do what's safe for them is, is really important. That was definitely something that uh, um, I know we were kind of taught as kids is just that, you know, it, it's disrespectful if you don't if you don't greet mm. that person, if you don't give them a <laughs> hug or a kiss. Yeah. But it's so you don't think about, oh, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's just if, they, if you're not comfortable everyone doing that it. this child has to say hello to is a terrible person, of course. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you want to hope that everyone in your family is really trusted and that that's great. But it's the message you're sending to the child. It's not necessarily the message that you're sending. And don't get me wrong, our old school family members, our older generation family members are still going to be offended. And that's okay because it doesn't matter because if we're like – you know, I'm trying to empower this next generation. The older generation have had their time. They can just be a little bit upset and then they'll go off and have a drink, have something to eat and they'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Because, But if the child that I'm in, like that I'm caring for feels that they get forced to do the thing every time, they're not going to want to go to the barbecue anymore. That's for sure. Um, and I was the same. Like I, I come from a big ethnic family and mm-hmm. – you kiss everyone when you arrive and mm. you kiss everyone when you leave. And it's like, there's 50 people here. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I, I remember um, uh, this happening in my family. I didn't uh, wish someone or, or do it correctly or something. And then um, uh, that relative actually got on the phone to my dad and yeah. just just yelled at <laughs> yelled at my dad yeah, for like not how, how for, are you raising your kids sort of thing yeah and the thing is like yeah we are taught to just uh be polite go up and hug and kiss and wish everyone or whatever but it's like you know that doesn't necessarily need to be i mean it, yes of course it's it's nice to yeah culture be, is important and i understand that for sure but yeah. i think there is a point where uh I'm not comfortable saying or giving everyone a hug and a kiss. That, that That's true. I'm not comfortable giving. There's certain people that I feel uh, closer with or whatever, yeah. but I don't necessarily. And feel- even the, the, you're saying that as an adult, can you imagine what, how like little kids feel mm. or like remember what that was like as a kid? Um, you know, even and- having this conversation now, I'm thinking back to situations <laughs> when I was a little kid. I'm like, wait a minute, that happened. But I didn't at the time. I just did. Yeah, Because you're a kid. You're like, oh. I just do what I'm told because exactly. that's also really important. Um, but yeah, no, where and it's the same for for me. Uh, I, I would just have these days where um, some family member would come be over from Mauritius and I'd never met them. They were like a fourth, fifth cousin of someone I don't know, didn't know their name. And I was just like, 
why do I have to kiss this person? <laughs> They're a stranger. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like, and it's just, it's tradition and it's culture and I get that. And, and I'm using it in, a, in the context of families like myself, who, like ours, who, who have these particular ways of greeting and whatever. But it happens even just like in a shopping centre. Like you might run into someone and you're with your child and you go say hello and the kid goes, I don't know who the hell that person is. I'm going to stand behind you. I don't want to shake their hand or whatever. And and it's like just let the kid do their thing. Like it doesn't – no one – everyone just needs to be less sensitive around this and remember that we're trying to empower our children to have autonomy in their bodies. So how is um – it been developing relationships from then on since um, your experience. Yeah. What was it like after and your experience just developing new relationships? Yeah. Uh, so I I definitely had. So I I got um, I met my now ex-husband um and got married and more I was in a relationship really young so I met him like when I was 18 and we got together really quickly and ex- everything escalated really quickly and there was some pretty major red flags in that relationship um but because the default was you push through bad stuff and you do what's written on the script and the next step was go get married and go have a baby and go do these things. And it was pretty clear what the pathway was. So I was like, okay, well, I've, got to, I've just got to go do the next thing. So in that relationship and um, definitely towards the end of that relationship, there were some really difficult times. Um, and, yeah, now looking back with someone with a lot more insight on trauma and a lot more insight on human behaviour, I'm like, oh, well, of course that happened. And, of course, I reacted in this way and whatever else. But, um I subconsciously defaulted into a situation where I was like, oh, I just have to, I I always have to kind of follow someone's lead. And so it didn't matter what kind of terrible things ended up happening in that relationship. I would kind of just always make it work. And, um, and because I had a son, I, the focus was always on him and, and whatever else. And so there were a lot of issues in, in that relationship. Not only, as I said, we ended up breaking up and, and that is what it is, but also just in regards to connection and intimacy. And I hadn't unpacked any of my um, abuse and trauma. So I'd kind of gone from being a child, having the abuse happen, disclosing to my mum, us not leaving, living in that life, living in that family setting, meeting my ex-husband getting into a relationship having a child like bang 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 like it was just happening 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 and but not at any stage had I really done any major therapy I had a pretty nasty breakdown in the first few years of that relationship and I did go to therapy again it was the first time I had been to therapy since I was 16 um and it was really specific therapy as well because I had said to him, I was like, I can't, like, we keep having issues because I've got all these triggers. Um, I need to find a therapist that specifically works in this space. Um, he knew about the abuse as well. So um, he was aware of why I was having these triggers. Um, but even then, like, it, it was it was just, it was a really hard part of our relationship because there was just all these things that were broken um, in me that I needed to work on. And 
when you bring that into a relationship that is probably already on some rocky foundation, um, it was really challenging. So eventually we split up and um, I met my now husband soon after and it's really interesting because it's a completely different blueprint. Um, It was really clear from the get-go that my mental health and well-being and my son's were my main focus and that everything else had to come second. And so I've actively been working on myself and and trying to be the best version of myself for all this time. And um, we've been to, we've been married for eleven years now. And um, yeah, even during the last few years of this really grueling process of disclosing publicly, writing a book, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing when you find a human that you genuinely trust with your emotional well-being. Um, Because it's one thing to just be comfortable in someone's physical company, but when you know that they can see you at your worst Mm. and you're completely safe with them, it's a a pretty special feeling. So, yeah, I've been through the good and the bad. um, and But I'm also really conscious of being the common denominator in when things have been bad and, and being conscious of where that stems from and the trauma that that stems from. And if you don't do the work, if you don't keep working on yourself and trying to better yourself, then you're the sec- you're the other half of a relationship. So um, it was really, it's been really important to me to continue that therapy and that work so I can continue improving the marriage that I'm in and the relationships that I have even outside of that with, you know, my friends and family and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Something I did find um, interesting to come across uh, uh, in your book is that you spoke about your your dad was the one who actually walked you down the aisle. Mm, yeah, for my first marriage. Yep. For your first, so not for your second. Not for my second. No. What like I I I'm interested to know what was that like for you? Did that did you feel like you were you were still acting in that moment? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um. And I think that's – so moments like that or reflecting on things like that are the things that people find the most confusing today. So people that have known me for a really long time, they're like, wait, I was at your wedding. How did – it just doesn't add up for them. At, or they you know, have had dinner with me and my family or they've – like there's people that have genuinely just been in this like movie – as such, playing their role, not knowing that there was like this whole other plot twist kind of to really kind of dumb down my story and make it easy to digest. Um, yeah, there's been people like that and they're like, and they're the people that are like, didn't your dad walk you down the aisle? I'm like, yeah, I was playing a really good role. Like how good was my acting? I was totally fine. Life was amazing. Look at how great my life is. Um, and what am I, and what do I do next? Like, okay, so I'm engaged. So what happens next? I've got to plan a wedding. What happens at a wedding? Oh, your father walks you down the aisle. Oh, that's so beautiful. Of course I'm going to do that. Now, how amazing is the brain that I can do that? And if you even look at those photos, we look completely normal and happy. Wow. But no one would pick a thing because that's the power of the brain. And that is also the power of the want to belong and the want to have family and the want to have a normal life. And if it's like, well, this is on offer to you, this normal life is on offer to you and everything you could hope and dream for is on offer to you. 
you just can't talk about this horrible thing and you have to ignore that it happened in the first place. And it's like, okay, I'll keep sacrificing myself and my well-being and my mental health so I can live this normal life. Something we don't think about too is um, we look at you, you being the, the actor, but really there's also another actor in the room that we don't, that we're not speaking about, mm. you know. There's multiple actors in the room because, you know, my mum is there, my older brother who is aware of the abuse is there, potentially other family members that may have heard over the time, I'm not sure. Um, my husband, mm. my or the man I'm marrying, he knows about the abuse and he's taking, he's kind of following my lead. So when I disclosed to him early in our relationship, he was like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, ah, oh, we just we just do life. Like I, I didn't even, we talked about it for a minute and it was just like, oh, this is what you do. So he just picked up his role and he played his role. And so, yeah, there's all these, all these actors. And um, I don't think you've gotten to this part in the book, but there's a part in the book where I refer to the movie, the Truman show. Do you remember the Truman uh, yeah, show? Yeah. Jim Carrey. Yeah. That's, that's this, that's this life that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, um, the Truman, Truman in this movie for us is my sister because she didn't know until 2020. You have a very close relationship with your younger sister, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, like, I say I chose to stay and we've already unpacked how much choices a child slash teenager have and, and, yes, there's some conversation around that language, but I chose to stay and I chose the life of what we do and have well, what we used to do because I don't live in that life anymore. But um, I chose all of that so she could have a normal life and I chose all of that so I could protect her and make sure that the abuse didn't happen to her. So that's why that was the main reason I stayed for so long. Mm. And I guess there's a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, mm. it's not like you could just obviously take your sister and, and then uh, – get out I guess but also you mm. even spoke about love for your mother as well like yeah, definitely. you just had that um that love and respect for your mom so you you didn't want to leave for her as well yeah mm-hmm. and and I have and have had a beautiful relationship with my mother um she is an incredible woman um and we have been very very close you know, different stages of my life, but I had to make a choice recently and just say, Hey, um, if you are not willing to leave this, your marriage, I cannot continue to have a relationship with you. And it sounds like an ultimatum, but it's more that I have my own life. Like I'm married. I have my children. I, you know, I have my own existence now. And if you want to be in this space that is emotionally, um, and psychologically safe for me and f- therefore for my my family that I've created, there are certain values that you need to bring with you and, and you need to kind of live by. Mm-hmm. And if you stay in this marriage, those two things don't match up. So I don't love you any less and I actually terribly miss you, but I can't have you in my space because we're just not on the same page when it comes to this topic. So how- and I respect that you've got your own, de- like you have decisions to make and your marriage is obviously really important to you and you've chosen to stay there, but that's your choice and I'm not going to force you otherwise, but I need to have a boundary in place for my own mental health and well-being. 
Absolutely. Have your kids met their grandparents? Yeah. Yeah. So because we were still doing the Truman Show as such, um, my kids have only not seen my parents since 2020. So they've both completely had – my eldest son has – has a very close relationship with my mum and is still in touch with her Um, and he's nearly an adult so he's got the capacity to choose and and I've very much enabled him to say, you you know, you get to choose the relationships you have in your life and I totally understand that you love your grandmother. Um, Neither of my children have never ever really had a close relationship with my father simply because I've never really had a close relationship with my father so though publicly we look like we lived a really normal life we didn't really speak much in the the household and we kind of kept our distance and um and it was always just put down as oh they just don't really get along and they just don't kind of see eye to eye like everyone not everyone there are families where you know the child and the the adult now child so um so the grown child and their dad, maybe, oh, they don't really get along because they always argue or whatever because people just have opinions and whatever. So it was always just put down to that. So Caroline's a bit like the black sheep of the family and she kind of does her thing and whatever else and no one thought anything of it. So now there was a clear reason why I had chosen to continue to distance myself from him, um, but no one had really ever questioned it. So my kids are a bit the same. Um, yes, they've met him and spent time with him over the years, but, um, you know, when it comes to Father's Day, for example, they don't go, oh, why aren't we getting a gift for our grandfather? Like it doesn't even hit their radar because I don't talk about it. So they don't talk, I don't talk about him. So they don't really talk about him. So, yeah. What do your kids know about your, um, your experience? About the story? Mm. Yeah. Um, so my eldest, um, is pretty much across most of it. Um, that's your, son, that's your so, 10-year-old son? No, my eldest is um, from my first marriage, so he's nearly 18. Yeah. So, you know, has that age and capacity to be able to understand this topic and has known for a few years now. Um, he's yet to read the book. Um, that's mainly because he's in the middle of year 12 and has a very heavy study load and he was like I don't I'm like I don't expect you to read this book this year because you've got a bit too much on your plate um but he hopes to read it kind of later this year or when he's got more headspace um it's just going to give him more insight of who I am as a person as opposed to the detail of the story that he's aware of um it's really complex for him because for a very long time he had grandparents that we were all acting and he was acting he didn't know he was as well and everyone had their script so when he learned of that he was very upset but he was really torn he was like but we've had all these memories and all these times together and I'm like yeah we have because I didn't want you to not have that but at the same time this other thing exists and and it's really hard like when you meet someone So even something as simple as you could be really good friends with someone and then find out they're cheating on their wife and you're just like, what are you doing? Like, that's not okay and that really goes against my morals. And then you're kind of stuck in the situation where you go, I really like you and we were really good friends, but you've done this thing that's really horrible. And don't get me wrong, there's a big difference between cheating on a wife and 
sexually abusing your daughter, two very different extremes, but I'm just trying to simplify it. And as humans, we get stuck. We're like, but I want to be friends with this person because look at the 90% of all the great things we do together and that I admire, but can I get past this thing? And my, my eldest son is a bit in that situation where he's like, he's heartbroken for me, but at times he's like, oh, this is weird. And I, it's like he had grandparents and then he didn't one day. And it, it's really quite tricky. My youngest is a little bit different. So he's just turned 10 and um, he has never really had a huge relationship with my parents. So yes, they've always kind of been in the background, um, but we, um, we live interstate from my parents. So we didn't really we've never really spent a lot of physical time with them. Um, and because I don't really talk about them very often, um, or more specifically, I don't really talk about my dad very often. My youngest son just doesn't really like, doesn't, it just doesn't hit his radar. Um, it's almost like those distant relatives we were talking about before, like they exist, but we don't talk to them every day. So they're not on your radar. Um, So what happens with him is since I've decided to distance myself from my mother, um, he did ask once um, recently, like in the last kind of year or so, and he was like, oh, why aren't we? And and it was interesting because I'd had a conversation with him a few years ago where he'd had a friend from preschool or kinder or something like that, and he had spent lots of time with this particular friend and spent time with them kind of every couple of weekends. And then over a particular period of time, every time I'd pick him up, he'd be like, I didn't have much fun. And it wasn't like, I just didn't have a good time. And I keep kind of telling them that I go there to play and they don't let me play with any of their toys and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, so what did you do? And they're like, I've just said something about it. And then after a while, I was like, this is silly. Like, I don't want to keep getting him to spend time with his friend because he's not enjoying himself. So I sat him down and I said, you know, you can just put a boundary in place and just not be friends with that person anymore. And he was like, but we've been friends forever and I don't know what to do. And I said, you don't have to do anything. Like if you have consciously asked someone to treat you better and they have chosen not to, or they've said, oh, sorry, but then done the same thing over and over again, they're not going to change. So you have to put the boundary in place and you have to call them and say, you're a terrible person. I've never seen you again. You just don't invite them over next time or you don't do the thing. And so when he raised this conversation about my mom and was like, oh, why don't we see her anymore or whatever? And I said, oh, you know how I told you about boundaries and how we, you know, when we ask people to do better, and they choose not to, it's actually up to us if we continue to have a relationship with them. So that doesn't mean that you can't apply that to people in your family. It's exactly the same thing. And he was like, oh, okay, I get it. And it was just a conversation that he could relate to something that had happened to him and how he had felt. And I was like, you know, I still love her and I miss her, but I've asked something of her and she can't give me that And that's okay. I have to respect that. So that's where the boundary is. And that's why we don't spend a lot of time with her. But I also have said to him, if you get to a point where you want to give her a call or it's important to you, no problems because you are an individual and you have the capacity to make those decisions. Um, But yeah, so don't get me wrong. That's a lot. There's a lot to empower a 10 year old with, but 
if I had been empowered with some of that language and some of that behavior, I'd probably be a really different person today. But yeah, it's, I think it's about modeling the behavior that I want, you know, that I want my kids to have. I kind of walk the talk and make sure that I teach them in the way that they see me model that behavior. So Mm. yeah. And I guess uh, if you were to compare yourself to maybe what the, the like what you are now as an adult in comparison to say um uh, a kid who's maybe it's your your son or yourself as a 10 year old is that Mm. that you obviously have a moral code that you live by now there's Mm. values and standards that you uphold that you believe in and i think it is important to hold those around you accountable so that you would want them to uphold you want the people in your lives to uphold the same moral code the similar values and Mm. standards that you believe in and obviously there was um a conflict of values with you and your mom and you were able Mm. to see that someone as your mom and to be able to put a boundary there and that's something that's important that Mm. like sometimes we put the relationship um, yeah, the title or the relationship before, before the value. The value. Mm-hmm. But really it's the, the values and the principles that I think should come first. Would you agree? Yeah, I do agree. And don't get me wrong. I, I'm saying this in a very clear and succinct way, but there's grief there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it's still hard. And I, even as I say the word grief, I can feel it welling up in me. Um it would be really, really lovely to pick up that script script again and to be like, oh, but my mum is my mum and I love her and I miss her. So I'm going to forego my values. I'm going to forego my emotional and psychological well-being because I miss her and I want my mum to be in my life. I totally get that that would in some ways be a lot easier because living true to your values and putting these boundaries in place is really hard and it really hurts sometimes but I don't feel that I can do what I'm supposed to do next as in I've chosen to speak openly I've chosen to really put myself out there and share this very hard story and I don't think that I can do that if I don't live true to these values. And unfortunately that means that I'm sacrificing something completely different now. Now I haven't attempted, like I've clearly attempted to try not to sacrifice that, but that would mean that she would have to sacrifice something and and that's her choice. So yeah, I completely agree with that, that values and the way we live and the integrity we hold should be above and beyond people titles relationships but i'm not going to imply that it's easy because i still have many days that are filled with grief because especially around the am i going to regret this piece um like you know my you know my mom's getting older there's going to be a point where she passes away and am i am i going to look back on however long and go oh we could have had all these years together making memories and i chose not to who knows? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But right now I know that I'm doing the right thing for, for me today. That could change in a year's time. I, I really don't know. But right now I, this is this is the boundary that needs to be in place. Mm-hmm. You've obviously 
spoken to a lot of people about your story, whether that be people who are on a podcast or um, uh, health professionals, family, friends, who were the best people that you spoke to that, you know, it, you felt comfortable? Who were the, who were the best people that, that you spoke to? I'm sure there would have been a lot of uncomfortable people, maybe inappropriate people. <laughs> there are a lot of uncomfortable conversations. Probably more um, of those than the <laughs> comfortable yeah. ones. Oh, uh, it's not. It's not that there's more of those. But it's it's interesting. Even titling them titling them uncomfortable is is interesting in itself. So it's not that. Sometimes they're uncomfortable because they're just uncomfortable, and you know they're hard conversations. Like sharing this story and disclosing to people that had have known me my whole life that's been really hard of late because I've almost shattered this this image that I've made like I, I had this really lovely shiny image of Caroline the person and and then I shattered that and went oh all of that is true because I've actually gone and done all of those things it wasn't all acting because I have evidence of all the things that I've done in my life but whilst all of that was happening I was either experiencing this or carrying the trauma after I experienced the abuse um so those conversations are hard because people are just they're so heartbroken and the more someone is invested in me so the closer I am to someone the longer I've known them the harder the conversation because I watch their heartbreak in front of me and it's gut-wrenching to watch someone experience the pain of hearing such a horrible story about someone that they love and and you watch that firsthand and it's yeah it, it kills me every time um and I often come home and will say to my husband oh I spoke to this person or this person bought the book and they've read and they've just called me and he's like yeah every time it's just it, it breaks their heart and it's hard and I'm like yep Considering your book just came out a couple months ago as well, you must be receiving quite a a lot. Hearing a few conversations at the moment. Um, Yeah, I am. And some people are just taking their time. I had a high school friend who read it in a day. She was like, I started reading it. I had actually reached out to her about a year ago. So she knew about the abuse but hadn't known when we were at school together. Um, And she then got my book, read it in a day and just – she she was really beautiful and and just kind of was going through so many emotions because I was talking about things that were happening when her and I knew each other and spent a lot of time together and she had no idea and then kind of talking about my life as well and and just the journey that I share um yeah so some people have just devoured it I've had some people that have bought it and not known what it was going to be. And then they've had this almost a rude shock. I had a really lovely, another person from high school actually who bought it and was like, I just kind of support anyone I know. And then I didn't realize what it was. And I was like, Oh babe, sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, it was very clear on the website what the book was about, but she was like, I didn't even read it. I just bought it because I wanted to support you. I'm like, that's really lovely, but apologies for making you cry a lot. And she's like, yeah, I was really sad. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we had a very funny conversation because she was really lovely and so supportive and, and whatever else, but I had not expected the book to be what it was because she didn't read the blurb beforehand. Um, but to go back to your question about kind of, what are the best is definitely not the right word, but the the conversations that 
the conversations that I always feel that I get to give and receive in are the conversations that I have with fellow survivors. Um, what I find, um, and this is unfortunate, the a real unfortunate part of this process is be it when someone reads my book or they hear my story, they then choose to disclose to me. And I've had people disclose to me of late that haven't disclosed to many, if any, people before um, because there's a safety there because I understand their story from my own lived experience. And so that's what I mean about that give and receive part um, because I've opened this door to this part of my life and and openly said, if you are willing to sit and read this, you are open to hearing this story and, and being on this journey of heartbreak and vulnerability and joy and life together with me as, as you kind of go through it. Um, so it's an open door, which therefore opens the door for other people to speak. And so I find those conversations always really, I don't even have the words for it, that there's just so much gratitude in those moments because I know the importance of what it's like to disclose to someone um, and also to disclose to someone that in some way, shape or form can provide empathy because they've experienced something similar. So all of our stories are completely unique to us. Um, every single element is different, but there is a safety in the survivor community and there is a real healing in, in this space that we're in. And um, yeah, it's, it's, as I said, like words like special and wonderful and all of those things are, are like seem odd because we're talking about such horrible things. But it, as a collective, we can heal so much more when we know that we're not alone. Um, and there was a point before I started really researching and doing lots of that work that you see in the book, there was a point where I thought that cases like mine were really rare then I worked out that they're not. And don't get me wrong, that's not a lovely statistic to find, but there was such a hope in realising I wasn't alone Mm -hmm. and that there were people out there that completely understood how I feel. Yeah, that's so valuable to just, obviously it's to be the only one that's like, yeah, and you're not. No no one out there is the only one of anything, to be honest. Like it's really, really rare to be the only one of anything. Um, but uh, and sorry, to, to clarify what I mean by that, I thought that my story of being abused by a parent and then being still in the same setting and still sitting at the dinner table and, and everyone pretending everything was okay, I thought that was really rare. Um, so I knew that people get abused by carers and parents and whatever, unfortunately, I already knew of that, but the, you know, when you disclose, no one does anything and you just stay in your family. I didn't know that that happened really, really often. People are sweeping stuff under the carpet more often than what we think. And yeah, it's like, I've reached out to a few people that have similar stories to mine and, there's just such a relief there because I'm like, oh, I'm not the only person that lived in this movie for so long and and had to play this role for so long. Do you feel like a lot of people have self, they just, there's that self blame 
and as survivors vic- yeah victims survivors mm. do you feel like that's um a big thing like uh it's just that yeah. you you might ask yourself um um uh going back to that what what could have what could i mm. have done or what you know was there yeah. was something i could have done and was i at fault was was it, you know, they just yeah. asked themselves that question, was it my fault? And yeah. that could be like half the trauma is definitely. just that self-blame. Did you feel yeah, like you, you had um, that or? We, be it at the time, be it straight after, be it over the years, there's def- that thought definitely comes. And um, I guess for anyone that's familiar with the term inner critic or inner, you know, your inner voice or the nasty things that your brain tells you, um, yeah, that, that's definitely come up and and can still come up um, because I'm not as I can't escape my own self. So there are times where I look in the mirror or I have a mannerism that is my father's. Like I am his daughter. I understand that. Like I, it's this isn't a, a person that's external to me. I'm not escaping this conversation. Like I, it's it's in me, um, and so. There have been times and there's a chapter in the book where I talk about, you know, just being a particular type of person. So I have been very tall and been socially socially kind of known as attractive since I was probably about 10, 10 or 12. So I was very tall at 12. Um, I was modelling by 14, um, that sort of stuff, and looking a certain way that society deems to be attractive um, is great in some ways, but it can really mess with your head when you are a victim of victim of abuse. And there have definitely been times in my head where I've been like, if I didn't look like this or if I didn't act this way or if I hadn't have said that or done that, does that mean that this wouldn't have happened? And um, even now, like it's, actually I shouldn't say even now, even in the last few years, um, if I'm having an off day, my brain can be super mean and can say, well, yeah, well, of course it's your fault because like look at you look this way and you men are attracted to you. So maybe it was your fault that he just didn't have any boundaries and lines around what he couldn't, couldn't do. Now, how horrible is that, that my brain does that to me? Um, But our brains are completely screwed up sometimes and it's definitely a part of trauma. But, um, yeah, and this is obviously just me speaking of my own experience, but there's definitely cases where um, victim survivors will try to work out what went wrong and, you try to work out how to how could you have not ended up in this situation and if that's your brain telling you that you should have done something different it can be really hard not to blame yourself um so yeah even now like i have days i I can have days where my brain will just say something that's really nasty um and it's just i don't know i actually don't really i haven't unpacked the psychology of why our brains do that to us but um, it can be really, really horrible. Um, and then I have to kind of tap into all of the things that I know work and that's, you know, my therapy, my journaling and all the other things to kind of go, okay, well, we need to tell that part of my brain to be quiet because 
of course it's not my fault and of course I didn't do anything and I was 10 and there was a very clear line that was crossed and it wasn't crossed by me and you know all the logical that's not my fault stuff will kick in but it yeah it can end up there and and that can sometimes be why people take time to disclose as well because they need to put the responsibility and accountability back in the hands of the perpetrator. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's so important just, just to, to understand you're not the blame. Like you're not, it's not your fault that these things happen to you. It's there's, mm. you know, but um, what advice or words would you give to someone, um, a victim? What, 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 what could you tell to your, your 10 year old self? Like what, is there any words of words uh, of advice? Um, maybe, yeah, just yeah. So I think in a similar way to what I was saying before, it's a lot of responsibility to put back on a ten-year-old. Um, but my main thoughts and advice I would give to any child um, that is experiencing any form of abuse is that it isn't your fault. And that right now, whatever you do, and I'm not even going to use the words choose to do because your body and your brain are just going to do what they do, is exactly what you're supposed to do right now. And, you know, look when you look back, there could be times where you go, I wish I had done X, Y, Z, but it's all about capacity and what your brain is doing when it's in fight, flight or freeze. So if you have chosen to freeze and completely check out because that is the only way you can survive that moment in time, then you, your brain and body are doing exactly what they need to do at that point in time. Now, if you have chosen that today is going to be the day that you speak up, that today is going to be the day that you're going to seek out a safe adult um, or that you're going to do something different, that is what you're supposed to do at this point in time, but know that it is not your fault um, and know that whenever you find the capacity to do something different, there will be someone out there that will listen. Um, and that's really all there is. Like it's it's a huge amount of pressure to put on a child um, and really like our bodies and, and our brains are just going to do exactly what they go to do, like what our instincts do. Um we can, everyone's had that situation where you walk out of a situation and you go, oh, I wish I'd said this or I had this great line or you're like practicing it in your head after. But you didn't do that at the time because your instinct tells you to do something and, and it's all about capacity. So use the capacity you've got to protect yourself and to survive in that moment in time um, because every single moment in time you are surviving um, and things will change and will hopefully change soon and there'll be you know a day where this isn't happening anymore and yeah because that's that's really all there is like this there's actually not a lot that you can expect of a child um but what i would say to survivors adult survivors i don't anticipate there's a lot of 10 year olds that listen to your podcast maybe there are maybe there's a whole heap of kids yeah, that we, are just we have out. <laughs> who knows yeah. um but for any um survivors out there who um you know who are just doing life every day it's a similar thing that i'd say to your 10 year old self like 
you have the capacity to do what you have the capacity to do today. So today you might choose to do some really wonderful steps on your healing journey, which could be as simple as journaling, which could be finally booking in to see a therapist, which could be speaking and disclosing to someone that you trust. Do what you know you can do today because you're still surviving and we all just need to do one day, one step at a time. Um, Know that you're not alone. We have a, a beautiful, connected survivor community who are all connected by this heartbreaking truth of our existence, but we all have a huge amount of empathy and understanding. And, and so you're not alone. And when you're ready, there will be someone in that community that is willing and able to be there to listen. Um, and in listening, they will be able to support you. Um, but you just need to do what you can do today. And, in a similar breath, like it's not your fault and it was never your fault. Um, so today just do what you can do because that's the most important thing, just what you're doing right now. Mm, nice. So Caroline, how has your speaking up about your story, your experience influenced your perspective on life now? Uh, there is such a freedom in speaking our truth. The, you, you said it before, the truth will set you free. Um, I, I've had people that have known me for quite some time and they're like, you're just so still and present and calm. And that I think was the surprising part of the last few months. Um, I've had hard days, don't get me wrong, um, and I've had emotional days, but overall I've just – I've been okay. And that's because I, there's nothing, I don't, there's nothing I'm trying to hide anymore. I don't have to, it's really hard practicing a script and showing up in a certain way every single day because it's, it's a job as such. So it's definitely taught me that when you can be your truest self and you can really sit in that truth, you're free to be yourself. Like you're free to just be a human being and to experience all of the feelings and all of the moments. Um, and as survivors, we're robbed of that the moment we have silence and shame, because as I said about memories, like we can't pick and choose. We just pack it all up and we numb ourselves and we're not, we're not living fully wholly. So it's, a beautiful feeling to be in the space and to finally feel whole and to see what was going to come next because it's like starting again. Mm. Um, I'm pretty excited that I'm turning 40. There's like a new milestone coming up and I'm at this point where I'm like, okay, well, what's next? Um, and it's all there. It's just laid bare and, and whatever comes next is of this truth versus whatever's coming next is great, but I need to navigate around this so no one finds out. So yeah, it's a great feeling. Mm. No, thank you so much for that. We really uh, appreciate you uh, jumping on and really opening up about uh, your story because um, yeah, we haven't had a story like yours yet on our, on our podcast, but yeah, it's something that we do think is important 
and we would like people to be more aware of it as well so yeah once again thank you caroline and we really appreciate you jumping on our podcast it's my absolute pleasure um and yeah if anyone in your community anyone listening wants to connect um i'm always online and available to um to have a chat because i think the more that we talk the the more we can do in this space yeah absolutely thank you so much and uh also uh, i do want to mention your book it's uh called it's titled uh more than one thing can be true did i get that right you did more than one thing can be true more, yeah. more than one thing can be true and how can uh people get access to this uh book is it, is yeah, sure. Um, so you can purchase it on my website, which is carolinebruni.com, um, which is where you'll also find like social handles and all that sort of stuff if you're on social media. Um, and so if you purchase it through my site, you'll get a signed copy, um, but it's also available pretty much everywhere else. So if you're a Booktopia type person, you can grab it through there um, and a few other distributors. If you're an audiobook listener, um, and I know I can smash through a whole book in a day versus trying to read a book. Um, so audiobook is available through all the normal audiobooks um, options. Audible tends to be the one that most people gravitate to. Um, and there's also an ebook version as well. So you can find all of those links on my website. Um, yeah, so it's pretty much there in any capacity because, of course, I don't do things in halves and I like details. So, yeah. <laughs> so I cover all bases. Awesome. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you for that. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Cut. That's that action.